Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to week nine of Revelation. We're more than halfway done, but we're kind of making our way through. And each week we begin by reminding ourselves of our goals. That's because we don't want you coming with your own set of expectations saying, well, you didn't answer my question. This, here's our goals. Number one, to take away a little, a little of the mystery and the fear from the book of Revelation. We hear things, we uh, read things, and we think, this is so mysterious, so complicated, I can't understand what's there. No, the main themes are clear. And so the second one relates to that. We're looking at the main themes. So we're not doing a deep dive into all the details where a lot of the debate and argument happens. We're looking at the main themes. And we're also saying, we want to love our brothers and sisters better, which means that we need to decrease our arrogance So that we say, you know what, there's a lot of stuff in here where there's disagreement on. Let's agree on the main themes. Let's agree on the things that are clearly taught, regularly taught. Let's sink our roots into those things and be able to do what Jesus says and let love be the theme of our lives. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a couple of sections from Revelation 11 and 12. But before we get there, let me call your attention Uh, to a couple of things that we've mentioned a few times, but you need to hear again. First of all, our basic outline of the book goes something like this. The first chapter explains the author, that's John, on the island of Patmos, writing back to seven churches in Asia Minor, Turkey today, writing back to seven real churches. That's chapter one. But it's not just author little a, it's author big a, because we're introduced to Jesus in chapter one, He's the one who tells John what to write. So we've got John, little a, Jesus, big A, author in chapter one. Then chapters two and three have the letters. So Jesus dictates to John seven letters. Those letters then get sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Then we get to chapters four and five, which I've called the central and centering vision. That's where we enter the throne room. Remember we talked about we're entering now the control tower. We see God there and Jesus take the scroll where he unrolls history, the victory of God, and the rest of Revelation unrolls that plan. Once we get the vision of history unrolling, then beginning in chapter six, that history begins to be unrolled. And that's where a lot of the debate happens. Beginning in chapter six through 19, we have three series of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, but they're punctuated by interludes. Do you notice that? In fact, this morning, we're in one of the interludes. So here's where we are. Last week, Wayne did a great job, by the way. Yeah, good job, Wayne. You're really deflating my ego. You don't clap for me, clap for Wayne. Wayne talked on the seven trumpets. We're in the interlude now, right? So this morning, we're going to talk about the interlude. Next week, Dave Marks is going to talk about the seven bowls. And then the week after that, I'm going to finish the interlude. And you know, the one thing uh, you need to remind yourself about interludes, interludes are like commercials, right? You're watching the game and a commercial comes on. They stop the action because you have to use the facilities, get something to drink. You need a break, right? Or if you go to a concert, they have an intermission. One of the things I like about a Springsteen concert, no opening band, no intermission. You go from beginning to end, I like that. But in Revelation, you get these intermissions. 
And if you think about it, if you go back and read through the three series of sevens and notice the interludes, it's almost like Jesus knows we need a break. I mean, all this nasty stuff's happening in the seals. And when you get to the sixth seal, you get a break, a commercial break, right? Kind of pick your head up and say, oh my goodness. And what happens in the interludes our perspective, our eyes are lifted above the fray, lifted above the judgments, and we see the big picture. We see the multitude in heaven. This morning, we're going to see the cosmic conflict and the fact that Jesus wins. The interludes provide us a little bit of a breather. Um, and then the last couple of sections we'll look at in a few weeks, uh, Revelation 20 and 21, 22, new heavens, new earth. That's our basic outline. You know where we are. Well, um, we've also mentioned four approaches. You're probably getting sick of these words by now. Vocabulary test, right? But here's what they mean. The preterist approach essentially means all of this stuff from 4 to 19, all that stuff in 4 to 19 primarily, when did it happen? It all happened in the first century. It all happened primarily with the fall of Jerusalem. So when Rome comes in, destroys Jerusalem, tears down the temple, that's where it all happened. So it's history for us. We're looking back on that. The historicists say, eh, yeah, the stuff kind of happened, but all of it didn't. It's all happening between the first and second coming. And so we're going to see today, I'll mention a couple of places, where Things have happened, but some things are yet to happen. They still look at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls as being sequential, but they're not finished yet. Futurists are going to say, no, 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 it's all future. Everything in chapters 4 through 19, it's all future. None of it's happened yet. And the idealists say, well, kind of happened, is happening, will happen. Recurring themes. And so it's kind of like, here we go again. And it's a repeated, recurring history of what has happened to God's people, how God brings victory, and we continue that, and how it all gets lined up at the end. Now, our goal, I hope you picked this up by now, my goal, certainly, and our goal as a church, is not to get you to adopt one of those approaches. It's to say, you know what, you can hold whatever approach you want to hold, but hold your approach a little loosely. Don't hold your approach as if it's an absolute clearly and regularly taught. Don't divide and separate and get all lathered up with people who may hold a different approach. Hold it loosely. Because here's the reality. Every one of us in this room, I think I'm, I'm safe to say it. Every one of us in this room, we did not come to our approach, whatever approach you hold, you did not come to that approach by inductively studying all the passages and putting it all together. You came to your approach because of the church you grew up in, you came to your approach because a teacher you respect taught that. And so you adopted an approach. And then once you adopt the approach, you read everything through that particular lens. And what I've been trying to show you the last few weeks, and you're going to see it again today, whatever approach you adopt, if you adopt it and then look at the data, it makes sense. If you're a preterist and you read what, it makes sense. If you're a historicist, and it makes sense. If you're a futurist, look what's happening in the world today. It makes sense. If you're an idealist, those recurring themes, it makes sense. So we ad usually adopt an approach and then use that approach as our lens to look through and see what's there. All right, well, this morning we're going to look at three sections from uh, Revelation 11 and 12. And the first one is the beginning of chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And we're going to look at measuring the temple. 
Now remember, we're in the interlude, right? Where the trumpets were getting too hot and heavy. And so you need a commercial break. Need a little intermission. Lift your eyes above. Here's the bigger picture. Well, here, here is what we um, read. First couple of verses. John writes, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. You may think, well, what kind of interlude is that? What the heck's going on? Okay, well, remember, here's the main theme everybody agrees with. Um, The outer court of the temple is overrun by the Gentiles. The inner court, right, the holy place of the temple, God's people are there. The true worshipers are in there. And so when you're in there, you're protected. Don't measure the outer court. It's being overrun. So what's the main part there? God knows his people. God protects his people. Now, different views are going to describe how that happened in different ways. So the preterists are going to say, that's a description of Rome destroying Jerusalem, but God protects his church. And so the Christians aren't all wiped out then. God preserves and protects the church as the city is being overrun by Rome. Historicists are going to say, no, 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 that's not what it's about. If you remember, right, you're walking through the seals and the trumpets. Here's what historicists say. As history has been unfolding so far, we're now about at the Reformation. So we're now in the 1400s, right? That's about where we are historically. And this means the outer court, the Roman Catholic Church, has become apostate, right? And there were really nasty popes back then in the Middle Ages, right? A lot, things were pretty bad, persecuting people who disagreed. But God protects the true believers in the midst of this false religion and apostasy. Futurists are going to say, no, 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 this is still future. And here's what they're going to say, right? This shows that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so one day, right, because John's told to measure the temple, and this is in the future, they're going to rebuild the temple. The Jewish Christians are going to reconstruct the temple, and we're going to see a little bit later, sacrifices will be reinstituted again by Jewish Christians. It's yet to come. Idealists are going to say, eh, just kind of the pattern over and over and over again. God protects his people against all of the onslaught of evil, all of those in opposition to God. This story has repeated itself over and over. God protects the faithful in the midst of a world that goes astray, in the midst of persecution, troubles, trials, tribulation. God protects them. You know what? We need that lesson, don't we? Do you uh, look around at the world, look around at your own life, your own family, things in our neighborhood, cities in this country, what's happening in the Middle East? You feel like uh, you need protection, you need control. What's the message? God knows his people in the seals, right, during the seals. God seals his people during the trumpets, right, in that intermission. God protects and holds his people together. God protects. God knows. God loves that's the point. Well, let's pick up reading in verse 3, and you're going to see it gets a little more complicated. Uh, so verse 3, we're, we're not in Daniel yet. We're here. Uh, verse 3. I will appoint my two witnesses, 
and they will prophesy for, for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. All right, now, what in the world is up with 1,200 days, um, 1,260 days, and what's up with three and a half, um, three and a half years? Okay, now, here's how it works. 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, time and a half, time the same thing, right? They mean days. I mean, they mean, the days actually mean years, years of how it works. Now, how do the futurists then get to the idea that this tribulation period is going to be seven years long? How do you get there? It doesn't mention that in Revelation, right? It doesn't say anything about that. Um, how do they get there? Well, they're going to link together a couple of things. And you need to pray for me right now because I could easily talk about this stuff until the Eagles game starts, all right? So I'm going to get rid of the nuance. We're going to fly real high over this. But this passage links to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Now let me give you the context, and then we'll read the verses. Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. Remember, he was taken back to Babylon, refused to eat the meat and stuff. Okay, He's in Babylon. Jerusalem um, is about ready. Jerusalem has been destroyed, right? All of that. Daniel then in Babylon, he's pretty cool, he's reading Jeremiah. Read the beginning of the chapter. Daniel is in exile, right? Um, Jerusalem's destroyed, temples destroyed, Babylonians did all that. He's taken captive. He's reading the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And while he's reading Jeremiah, he notices that Jeremiah writes, you will be exiled for 70 years. And so Daniel says, huh. He starts counting. Hey, time's about up. And so here's what he prayed. Really cool prayer. You read the prayer in the beginning of, of Daniel 9. He says, Lord, you've been absolutely faithful and, and you, you've, you've done everything you said you would. You said if we disobeyed, we committed idolatry repeatedly, etc., apostasy, you would remove us from the land. You did all that. You also said after 70 years, we would return. It's almost time. And then God answers but he doesn't say, you're right, time's up. He says this, the end of the 70 years begins a process. Don't you hate that, right? It's like it's not over, a process. Well, here's the process. The process is 77s. So 70's up, now it's 77s. Here's what it says. Um, Daniel 9, 24. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish trans, six things. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So far, everything's clear, right? Usually, uh, sevens mean, you know, like seven as in a week, but usually in prophecy, often it can mean years. And so here we've got 70 sevens, 490 years, right? And so the end of the 70 years of exile begins 490 years. And what's going to happen in the 490 years? Basically, sins are going to be forgiven, wickedness is going to be atoned for, and uh, the, the most holy place will be anointed. You know what that means? Somehow in those 77s, salvation will be accomplished. Right? Everybody agrees with that. Now, the next part gets a little more tricky. Here's what it says. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, 
there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So what's, what's seven? And, you didn't know you were going to do math today, right? <laughs> seven plus 62, 69. 69, right, in years, 483 years. Now there's debate as to what exact, when exactly the decree was given to rebuild Jerusalem. Is that Cyrus's command? Is that when Ezra goes back? Is that when Nehemiah goes back? Lots of difference on it. But basically, real rough math without the nuance, about 450 BC, right, minus 483, that's about 33 AD, 33 AD, toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh-oh, right? So it's going to start a series of 77, but we're only at 69. The futurists are going to say, then there's a break, right? And go to the next slide. After the 62 sevens, which comes after the seven, right? after, the, after the 69, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue to the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. There's the one seven that's left, right? That, for our dispensational futurist friends, that is the week. That is the seven-year tribulation. Clearly and regularly taught, right? <laughs> one seven, tucked away in Daniel chapter nine, one seven, the last of the seven, 77s, that's where it is. So in the middle, uh, for many, for one seven, in the middle of the seven, right? Three and a half years, we just read that, right? In the middle of that, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering at the temple, and the temple, he will set an abomination of desolation until the end is decreed and poured out on him. So what our futurist friends are going to say, and what they do say is, um, okay, at the end of the 69 sevens, Jesus' first coming, right? The anointed one put to death. Then we've got a gap. Then after the gap ends, we've got one seven left, one seven-year period yet, and all this stuff that we've been reading in Revelation, seals, trumpets, bowls, all that fits in to that last seven. You got it? That's how it works. Um, so that is what the 42 um, has to do, 42 months, right? Uh, that is what the 1260, that's what the times, time and a half time is. All of that has to fit in that seven-year period. Now, there are two different, and we briefly said this. We're not going to talk too much about it. Um, there are basically two different kinds of futurists. The one historic futurist they say, yeah, we believe there's a seven-year thing. We believe that Daniel stuff, right? And we believe that seven-year tribulation, but we don't believe historic futures. We don't believe the rapture and second coming are two different things. We believe the rapture and second coming, same thing. Dispensationalists say, no, no, no. The rapture is different from the second coming, and the seven-year period, tribulation, is between those two. Now, the big difference isn't really in that timing. Here's the big difference. Historic um, futurists, they do not see a difference between the church or Christians and Israel. Dispensational futurists, they see Israel as different than Christians or the church. Therefore, right, in, in that dispensational scheme, why you need the rapture before that, all the Christians are taking out at the rapture. 
Who were then these believers running around? Who's rebuilding the temple, starting sacrifices? They're Jews that have become Christians, right? So dispensational Christians, the Jew, the Israel is always separate from the church. Um, historic futurists, right? Idealists, historicists, preterists, they all say, no, no, no. And the church replaces Israel, right? You got all that? All right, now let's talk about the two witnesses now. So, so, so that's kind of measuring the temple. And um, whatever, again, we're not here advocating a particular view except to say, hold your view with a little humility, but also keep the main things clearly in focus. Dial nose hills. Now, now we have two, two witnesses. Here are the verses about two witnesses. Uh, this is actually a little clearer. I will appoint my two witnesses. Um, like John getting this vision. I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years again, right? Um, clothed in sackcloth, a sign of repentance. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and, mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. All right? Um, well, let me ask you an easy question first. Who do you think of when you think of an Old Testament character that prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years? Who do you think of? Anybody? Elijah, that's right. Who do you think of from the Old Testament that turned waters to blood? Moses, right? So here we have two ideas. Now, if you think about it, the situation is rather similar regardless of your view. What was going on when Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years? Ahab was the king and his crazy wife Jezebel, right, two of them, they were leading the nation into idolatry away from God. God then brings judgment through Elijah, and part of the judgment is drought. Moses, the people are right, enslaved by an evil Pharaoh who refuses to acknowledge God. What does God do? God brings plagues or judgment upon Egypt, and the people are freed from captivity and go to the promised land. Huh, those themes sound familiar, right? And so clearly, uh, John is getting the vision here of similar pattern to what happened in the Old Testament. Well, what's up with the olive trees and the lampstand? All right, well, that idea isn't brand new. That comes from Zechariah chapter 4. Now, after the Jews leave the exile, they come back to the promised land, um, Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two that are rebuilding. And Zechariah has a vision, and Zechariah and, and Zerubbabel, yeah, Joshua and Zerubbabel are pictured as two olive trees, and the church, Israel is seen as a lampstand. Now, what's going on with the olive trees? Well, think about it. The priests had to tend the lampstand. But if you have two olive trees, that are kind of hooked up to the lampstand, which means the oil's automatically flowing from the trees. You don't need priests. And so the picture there is the lampstand 
Israel, the lampstand, the people of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? The olive tree filled with the Spirit, lighting up the world. That's what's going on. So who would the two witnesses be? You should be able to answer these questions now. Who would the two witnesses be? The witnesses would be, for the preterist, the faithful believers, those who testify and shed light, filled with the Spirit, into those dark times of the first century. To the historicist, who are the two lampstands, which we read about at the beginning of the book? They would say, well, we're in the Reformation, right? So now we have the reformers, those that are bringing the gospel again to bear within the context of the apostasy of the church, the reformers are the lampstand lighting up, filled with the Spirit. The futurists are going to say, no, no, no. These are probably two actual people that will appear toward the end of the tribulation, and they're going to do what, what happens here. So they're going to be killed, and they're going to be raised from the dead. Or it's going to be more witnesses of what's going to happen. Um, idealists are going to say, God has always had his people that are faithful. And our job as his people is not to draw the roadmap. Our job is to be filled with the Spirit and light up with the message of the gospel. The two witnesses are God's people. The true witnesses are those that are filled with the Spirit of God that have the responsibility to live out the gospel in a dark and dying world. We have that responsibility. See how it works? Well, now we go to one more section. Turn over to chapter 12. And here we're going to look at the woman and the dragon. Um, pretty interesting stuff. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, and she was there and taken care of for 1,260 days. All right, so who are these players? Um, let's start with the easy one. Who's the child? That's Jesus, right? That's the Messiah. He's going to rule the earth with an iron set. That's Jesus. It gets a little more complicated from there. Who's the woman? Well, some would say, and the Roman Catholic Church has said, that's Mary. Mary gives birth to the Messiah. Um, don't think that fits the context real well. Right? Futurists, particularly of the dispensational variety, they're going to say the woman is Israel, right? giving birth to the Jewish Messiah. Um, most historicists and all idealists, right, symbolists, they would say the woman is the people of God. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, because if you read the rest of it, it isn't just that the people of God give birth to the Messiah, once Jesus is snatched away, right, ascension, once Jesus is taken away, the enemy now attacks, goes after the woman's children. Well, that's not Israel. That would be the church. And so they would say it's the people of God through that time. See how that works? 
Well, uh, I was thinking a lot about that these past few weeks. And here's what I thought. The book of Revelation is not designed for you and I to draw a roadmap of the future. It's not designed so we learn, know what all these details are. We don't live in a world that has these symbols, right? So to decode them, we're always a few um, steps removed. The point is, Revelation is a discipleship book. It was written to God's people the church, seven churches, God's people experiencing great persecution. They're living in a world of trouble, trial, tribulation, and Jesus gives them the book so they will have faith, hope, and love. You know, isn't it interesting that we um, spend a lot of our time, most churches do, and, and it's, it's a good practice, most churches try to come up with marks of maturity. Like, what are the marks of, of the mature Christian life that we should all be aiming for? Um, and I've read some of those lists and looked at some of the matrices and stuff, and I always kind of smile a little bit to myself because of why do we need to come up with the marks? God gives them to us. Here are the marks. I just said them. Faith, hope, and love. They're the marks. So here's the bottom line. If you're a preterist, a futurist, an idealist, a historicist, you know what? Hold that position loosely, whatever that is. The message of Revelation is you and I have a day of accountability coming. And if you and I are going to stand on our own record, we're in a world of trouble. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ the only Messiah and Savior this world will ever know, you can be on Jesus' side, find acceptance, forgiveness, and love forever and ever. And here's another point. Many of you in this room have already done that. And maybe you're resting on that. I've already done that, Charles, what you're telling me to... Okay. Are you living by faith day to day? Or did you somehow put your faith in Jesus years ago... But you know what? Today, darn it, it's up to me what I have to do. And i got to take life by, by the horns, and I've got to work. No, no, no. Um, the Scripture has a repeated theme. You and I are poor and needy, friends. And the only way we're going to get through in any way that brings glory to God is by living a life of faith in Him, taking what He says above what we think, and living that out. Not just that, we need to live in hope. You know what the, what the message of Revelation is? Um, we don't know the details. We do know who wins. Um, you ever, I'll, I'll let you know a little secret. Um, if my team's winning, like for example, Penn State won yesterday. That was a good thing, right? We're not talking about two weeks ago. Yesterday, they won. The score was really outrageous, right? They're winning by a lot. And this Maryland guy, makes a really good tackle. He jumps up, thumping his chest, right? Yeah, yeah, Terps. But you look at the scoreboard, like, all right, you're only down by 45 points. Um, you know what the message of Revelation is? Hey, the final score has been posted. And you and I may take a setback now and then, and there may be difficulty we don't know how to handle. Uh, when you're feeling down, look at the scoreboard. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. 
He's coming back in victory, and all who are with him will stand forever and ever. When you're feeling down, when people are on your case, when you feel like we're losing, when the enemy's taunting you, tell them to look at the scoreboard. It's already over. Oh, yeah, faith, hope, and love. The message of Revelation isn't beat your Christian brothers and sisters up with your view because you think you've got better evidence than they've got. The message of Revelation is love God and love one another. Faith, hope, and love. We don't need to buy the newest book on the marks of a mature Christian. All we need to do is read the New Testament. Read Revelation. Faith, hope, and love. I sure hope you bear those marks. And I sure hope they're growing in you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this uh, middle section of this book that we often throw up our hands and say we don't understand. Lord, thanks that the main themes are crystal clear. Thanks that we're to live in faith, hope, and love, and you give us enough evidence to put our faith in Christ rather than stand on our own record. And if you're here this morning, friend, and you haven't done that, you need to do it today. We need to live in hope, regardless of what the circumstances and situation looks like around the world and in our lives. Live in hope. We know the final score. And live in love. Live above our little petty interpretations. Love Jesus. Love his people. And in the end, we'll be following in the right direction, serving Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray in his name. Amen.